Welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. Hasidism was founded by an individual named the Baal Shem Tov, which translates as the master of a good name. In the 19th century, faced with extreme legalism, the Baal Shem Tov preached joy, love, ecstasy, mysticism, cleaving to God. His many disciples spread throughout Eastern Europe, and in the Ukrainian town of Lubavitch, one rabbi became the focus of what today we would call the Lubavitch Hasidic movement. The story I'm about to share with you is based on his teachings. Elul, the last month of the Jewish year, is a time of paradox, a time of what might be termed spiritual workdays. The Jewish calendar distinguishes between two generalities of time. Mundane, in Hebrew known as Chol, and Holy, in Hebrew known as Kodesh. Ordinary workdays are mundane portions of time. Shabbat and the festivals are examples of holy time. In holy times, we Jews disengage ourselves from the material involvements of life, devote ourselves to the spiritual pursuits of study and Passover. These are also days enriched with special spiritual resources. Rest on Shabbat, freedom of Passover, awe on Rosh Hashanah, each providing its unique quality to the journeyer through calendar and life. In the latter respects, the month of Elul, the Hebrew month in which we find ourselves now, resembles the holy portions of the calendar. Elul according to Hasidic tradition, is a haven in time, a city of refuge from the ravages of material life, a time to audit one's spiritual accounts and assess the year gone by, a time to prepare for the days of awe, of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which will occur at the end of this Hebrew month of Elul, by repenting the failings of the past and resolving for the future. It is traditionally a time to increase in Torah study, prayer, and charitable activities. Elul is the opportune time for all of this, because according to Hasidic tradition, it is a month in which God relates to us in a more open and compassionate manner than he does in the other months of the year. In the terminology of Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism, it is a time when God's 13 attributes of mercy illuminate our relationship with us. Yet unlike Shabbat and the festivals, 
The days of Elul are work days. On Shabbat, the Torah commands us to cease all physically constructive work. The festivals, too, are days in which malacha, work, is forbidden. Regarding the month of Elul, however, there are no restrictions on work. The transcended activities of Elul are conducted amidst our workday lives in the field, the shop, the office, or wherever one might work. Rabbi Schnur Zalman of Ladai explains the paradox of Elul with the following metaphor. The king's usual place is in the capital city, the royal palace. Anyone wishing to approach the king must go through the appropriate channels in the palace bureaucracy to gain the approval of a succession of secretaries and ministers. The individual must journey to the capital and pass through many gates, corridors, and antechambers that lead to the throne room. The presentation to the king must be meticulously prepared, and the supplicant must adhere to an exacting code of dress, speech, and mannerism upon entering the royal presence. However, according to this metaphor, there are times when the king comes out to the fields outside the city. At such times, anyone can approach the king, and the king receives them all with a smiling face and a radiant countenance. The peasant behind his plow has access to the king in a manner unavailable to the highest-ranking minister in the royal court when the king is in the palace. The month of Elul, says the Hasidic rabbi Shnur Zalman, is when the king is in the field. I want to talk to you about Elul, the time, according to Hasidic tradition, that the king is in the field. Bread is the staff of life that sustains the heart of man. There was a time when almost everyone plowed, sowed, and harvested the grain that sustained them and their families. But even today, when only a small percentage of the world farm the land, we all labor for bread. Everyone works in the field be it the wheat field or the corn field or the field of banking, steelmaking, medicine, advertising, or teaching. Indeed, the field is the prototype employed by Torah law to define the work that distinguishes between the holy and mundane days of the calendar. The Talmudic passage, remember the Talmud is that legal material and agotic material, compiled between the 3rd and the 6th century of the Common Era, the Talmudic passage, which lists the types of work forbidden on Shabbat, reads, the categories of work are 40 minus 1. Sowing, plowing, reaping, making sheaves, threshing, winnowing, picking the shaft from the grain, milling, sifting, kneading, baking. Each of these categories represents an entire category which includes many different types of work. For example, leveling the ground to make a tan tennis court is tantamount to plowing, according to Jewish tradition. Mixing cement is a form of kneading. Sorting laundry would fall under the category of picking the shaft from the grain. But at prototypes that head and dominate the list of forbidden labors are labors of the field, 
In the words of the Talmud, the author of the Mishnah follows the process of bread making. For 11 months of the year, our lives alternate between the field and the palace, between the process of bread making of material life and the sublime moments in which we leave the field to enter the royal presence. However, as I've suggested according to Hasidic tradition, in the month of Elul, the king comes to the field. What happens when the king comes to the field? To understand the essence of Elul, we must first examine the relationship between the palace and the field, between the Shabbat and the work week, between the very concepts of holy and mundane. Are they really as different from each other as their very different faces suggest? So let us take a moment to explore, as the Hasids did, the work of the field and the process of bread making that defines our workday lives. Torah, according to Hasidic tradition, chooses a rather roundabout way to convey to us 39 types of work from which we must assist on Shabbat and the festivals by linking the laws of Shabbat to the laws of the building of the sanctuary. Following the revelation at Sinai, God commanded the people of Israel to construct a sanctuary for him, a mikdash, and detailed instructions were given to Moses on how to shape 15 materials, gold, silver, copper, wood, flax, wools of various colors, and several types of animal skins into a dwelling for God in the physical world, a mishkan. In both the 31st and 35th chapters of Exodus, the commandment to cease work on Shabbat and God's instructions concerning the construction of the sanctuary immediately follow each other. The Talmud explains that the Torah juxtaposes these two seemingly unrelated laws to teach us that the 39 creative acts which the construction of the sanctuary necessitated are the same 39 categories of work that are forbidden to us on Shabbat. I'm going to quote the Talmud from Masechet Shabbat, the section on Shabbat. A person is guilty of violating the Shabbat only if he work, if the work he does has a counterpart in the work of making the sanctuary. They sowed the herbs from which to make the dyes for tapestries. You too shall not sow on Shabbat. They harvested the herbs to make the tapestries. You too shall not harvest. They loaded the boards from the ground onto the wagons. You too shall not bring an object from a public domain into a private domain. The work of the sanctuary, therefore, is the prototype for the work of life. In the words of the great Hasidic text, Tanya, this is what man is all about. This is the purpose of his creation and the creation of all worlds, the supernal and the ephemeral, to make God a dwelling in the physical world. In other words, the work forbidden on Shabbat and the festivals, the work that defines the difference between the holy and mundane of our life, is not mundane work at all. It is holy work, the work of forming the physical world into a home for God. Why then are the days on which this work is done regarded as mundane days of our life? 
And why are the days on which we are commanded to cease this work holier than the days on which this work is done? Indeed, the difference between the holy and the mundane times in our lives is not a difference in essence, only a difference in perspective. Yet the reality of physical life is that to achieve a change of perspective, one must change the place and position from which one looks. Beyond its mundane surface, the material world possesses a deeper truth, its potential to house the goodness and perfection of its creator. The purpose of our workday lives is to reveal this potential, to develop the material world as a home for God. But on the workdays of our life, this potential is all but invisible to us, obscured by the very process that serves to bring it to life. Our very involvement with the material prevents us from experiencing its spiritual essence. To experience the spiritual essence, we must rise above it. A holy day, according to Judaism, is an elevation in the terrain of time, a lookout tower that rises above the surface of our workday lives to behold the true essence of our world, the essence we are laboring to actualize. Rising to these lookout points means interpreting our life's work. But without these periodic glimpses from a higher, more detached vantage point, our involvement in the material may well become an enmeshment. Instead of sanctifying the mundane from the lookout, we may find ourselves being profaned by it. So on one day a week, and on special occasions throughout the year, we cease our work in the field to gain a more transcendent view of our workday labors. Then when we re-enter the so-called mundane days of our lives, the Shabbat or the festival experience lingers on. Enriched with insight into the true nature of our labors, fortified by the vision of what our involvement with the material world will ultimately achieve, our workday lives become more focused on their goal and less susceptible to the diversions and entanglements of the mundane. For 11 months of the year, our lives alternate between the holy and the mundane, between the material labor of life and the spiritual vision of life's labors. For 11 months of the year, we must at regular interviews cease our work and rise above it in order to glimpse its soul and its purpose. The exception to this rule is the month of Elul. For during the month of Elul, the king comes to the field. The king is the heart and soul of the nation, the embodiment of its goals and aspirations. The king, though sequestered behind the palace walls and bureaucracy, though glimpsed, if at all, through a veil of opulence and majesty, is the very real part of the farmer's field. The king is the why of our plowing. The king is the reason for our sowing, the object of our harvests. No farmer labors for the sake of labor. He labors to transcend the dust of which he and his fields are formed to make more of what is. He labors for his dreams. And in this metaphor, he labors for the king. 
So is the king and the field an apparition out of its element? Hardly. We may not be used to seeing him there, but it is not the royal heart, but is not the royal heart too sustained by bread? His bread may be baked in the palace, its raw ingredients discreetly delivered to a back entrance. The golden tray on which it is served may in no way invoke the loamy bread from which it grow, but it is the yield of the field all the same. The king in the field is making contact with the source of his sustenance, with the underpinnings of his sovereignty, and the field is being visited by its raison d'etre by its ultimate function and essence. Shabbat is when the farmer is invited to the palace. On Shabbat, his overalls are replaced with the regulation livery. His vocabulary is polished and his manners are refined. His soul and fingernails are cleansed of the residue of material life. On Shabbat, the farmer is whisked from the hinterland to the capital and ushered into the throne room. But Elul, This Hebrew month in which we find ourselves now is when the king comes to the field. When a farmer sees the king in his field, does he keep plowing? Does he behave as if it were just another day in the fields? Of course not. Elul is not a month of ordinary days. It is a time of increased Torah study, more fervent prayer, more generosity and tzedakah. The very air is charged with holiness. We might still be in the field, but the field has become a holier place. In the month of Elul, the month in which we now find ourselves, the essence of objective of life becomes that much more accessible. No longer do the material trappings of life conceal and distort its purpose. For the king has emerged from the concealment of his palace and is here in the field closer to us. But unlike the holy days of the year, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when we are lifted out of our workday lives, the encounter of Elul is hosted by our physical selves within our material environment on our working man's terms. This story and its teachings is, of course, metaphoric, and it is how the Hasidic movement called Lubavitch speaks of the month of Elul. Let me move from the metaphoric, then, to the more factual. The month of Elul is the 11th month of the Hebrew year. The month of Elul is a time of repentance in preparation for the holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Tradition teaches that the month of Elul is a particularly propitious time for repentance. And this mood of repentance builds through the entire month to the period of Slichot, the Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, and ten days later to Yom Kippur. The name of the month, Aleph Lamed Vav Lamed, is said to be an, an acronym from the Song of Songs for the Hebrew phrase, Ani l'dodi li v'dodi li. I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. Of course, in the Song of Songs, the beloved is God, and the I is a Jewish people. In Aramaic, the vernacular of the Jewish people at the time that the month's names were adopted, 
The word Elul means search, which is appropriate because this is a time of year when we search our hearts. According to Jewish tradition, the month of Elul is the time that Moses spent an entire month on Mount Sinai preparing the second set of tablets after the incident of the golden calf. We can read this in Exodus 32 and Exodus 34. He descended on the first day of Elul, known in Hebrew as Rosh Chodesh Elul. And he ascended on Rosh Chodesh Elul and descended on the 10th of Tishrei, at the end of Yom Kippur, when repentance was completed. Of course, other sources say that Elul is the beginning of the period of 40 days that Moses prayed to God to forgive the people after the golden calf incident, after which the commandment to prepare the second set of tablets was given. There are many customs that mark Elul as different from the other months of the Hebrew calendar. During the month of Elul, from the second day of Elul to the 28th day, the shofar, a hollowed-out ram's horn, is blown after morning services every weekday. The shofar is not blown on Shabbat, and it is not blown on the day before Rosh Hashanah to make clear the distinction between the rabbinical rule of blowing the shofar in Elul and the biblical commandment to blow the shofar on Rosh Hashanah. Each morning, four blasts are blown. Tekiah, Shavarim Teruah, and Tekiah. The Rambam, Maimonides, explains the custom of blowing the shofar as a wake-up call to sleepers, designed to rouse us from our complacency, it is a call to repentance. The blast of the shofar is a very piercing sound when done properly. Elul is also the time to begin the process of asking forgiveness for wrongs done to other people. According to Jewish tradition, God cannot forgive us our sins committed in another person until we have first obtained forgiveness from the person we have wronged. This is not an easy task, as you might think. And if you have never done it, it is an especially difficult task. During the month of Elul, many people visit cemeteries, and because of the awe-inspiring nature of this time, we consider the issues of life and death in in addition to our own mortality. One of the traditions that the month of Elul is noted for is the reading of Psalm 27. For those who don't have a Tanakh, a Hebrew Bible, or an English version of the Bible, let me read it to you. So this Psalm would be read each and every day. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom should I be afraid? When evildoers came against me to devour my flesh, 
my foes and my enemies stumbled and fell. Though an army deployed against me, my heart is not afraid. Though war break out against me, still I am confident. I have asked one thing from God. It is what I desire, to dwell in the house of God all the days of my life, gazing on the beauty of the eternal and seeking God in his temple. He will conceal me in his shelter in the day of adversity. He will hide me under the cover of his tent. He will set me under the cover of his tent and high on the rock. Then my head will be high above my enemies around me. I will offer sacrifices in his tent with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the eternal God. Lord, hear my voice when I cry. Be gracious to me and answer me. In your behalf, my heart says, seek my face, God. Do not hide from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me or abandon me, God of my salvation. Even if my parents abandon me, God cares for me. Because of my adversaries, show me your way, God, and lead me on a level path. Do not give me over to the will of my foes, for false witnesses rise against me, breathing violence. I am certain that I will see God's goodness in the land of the living. Wait for God, for be courageous, and let your heart be strong. Wait for God. The plea of Elul through Psalm 27 is... Trust in God. A perfect preparation for that which is to take place on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. As you have heard, Elul is about turning towards the spiritual new year known as Rosh Hashanah. Elul is the period of time in which Jews experience the opportunity, whether they pray on a regular basis or whether they uh, participate in the service on the uh, Saturday night before Rosh Hashanah, known as Slichot, they have an opportunity to turn to God. It is a powerful spiritual opportunity. And that is the month that the Jewish people find themselves in now. The month of Elul. The month of repentance. The month of contemplation. The month of accounting. Cheshbon HaNefesh. An accounting of the soul. That is what we do during this month. For Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten wishing you a good day and Shalom. Yeah, I